And good morning to you. Mike has the day off. I'm Sterling Fox. Delighted to be with you on this Easter weekend. Sarah Hyde pulling the strings behind the show and uh, Tim French at the controls. Nice to be with you all. And boy, a busy show lined up. We're going to start off today with a look at what Patty Backus, ed- education columnist with the Georgia Street, former of Vancouver school board chair, uh, calls the mask muddle. Patty Backus here to uh, flesh this one out a little bit. Not that it needs a lot. Patty, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's uh, it's been quite muddled. Is a good word, actually. Saw the piece in the street mm-hmm. you wrote the other day, and, and muddle is a kind word. Uh, some parents would say, uh, but it is indeed uh, uh, just an, uh, a morass of confusion and mixed messaging. Take it from there. Yeah, it was a pretty chaotic rollout. I don't know if your listeners have paid attention to the Monday uh, update with uh, Premier Horgan right. and Adrian Dix, and. Um, uh, and Dr. Bonnie Henry, and there were some changes announced to the provincial health orders that we all heard, some big steps, and that was the same time that uh, Premier Horgan scolded the 20-something and 30-something groups for spreading the virus. Um, and Dr. Henry and then, announced her circuit breaker three-week uh, <laughs> order, so that, that, that it was a part of the package, and this was the, uh, was it support for masks in school rather than mandating masks in schools that kind of got to you? Yeah, because we'd all heard over the weekend that the uh, Fraser Health Authority Public Health Officer, Dr. Victoria Lee, had kind of struck out on her own with an order for Surrey schools to uh, require masks for grades four and up. And that was the first time we've seen one uh, medical health officer kind of strike out uh, as an outlier with the provincial framework for schools. So there was expectation and there was a buzz, and um, some of my sources were saying they were going to just apply that to the whole province and that Dr. Henry would, would announce that. When it came to that point in the news conference, she really stumbled. She paused, she kind of stumbled, and then she said, support wearing masks down to grade four, right. which was kind of vague. We thought, well, aren't we already supporting and encouraging kids to wear masks? I thought that was kind of what we were all doing, uh, although they weren't absolutely required. So uh, I, there was immediately a reaction on social media and from some of my sources saying, hey, wait a minute, we were told it was going to be a requirement. What is going on? So there was a day of confusion. Uh, that was Monday, Monday night. There was a bulletin that went out from the Deputy Minister of Education to the school superintendents and principals saying, no, they're not required, but we're going to support and encourage Support, them. more support, right, okay. <laughs> so people were not happy with that. The, the, the many teachers of the BCTF and lots of parents who've been wanting to see uh, masks uh, required for at least grades four and up um, to prevent the transmission, particularly with this more contagious variant that uh, is getting everyone very nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of went on. Uh, Tuesday, people, I emailed the Ministry of Education in the morning and said, like, can you just clarify what are the rules? Sure. Assuming somebody somewhere would know. Not an uh, unusual not. request either. <laughs> yes. You know, this wasn't uh, out of the blue. These right. are, this is a we're in a state of emergency. We have some highly paid public officials to make these kinds of decisions. And one would think when they had an announcement and said the orders took effect at midnight on Monday, that on Tuesday they'd know what those orders were in the school in the Ministry of Education. They did not. Um, so there was a lot of chaos. I had teachers and other uh, employees and some administrators and school districts messaging me saying we had scheduled a 
staff meeting to discuss the new orders, but now no one knows what they are. Right. We've been told to hold off. So it was really crazy in the, you know, in the middle of what we've all been going through, the last thing anybody needed. By Tuesday night, the education minister, Jennifer Whiteside, issued quite clear orders uh, that for a requirement for masks. So that that uh, has sort of been unfolding through the rest the latter part of the week as school districts now try to inform everyone and explain and uh, encourage students to wear them. And now, and there's a big caution with this because this the change to the provincial uh, BC CDC guidelines. It's still, uh, Dr. Henry is referring to it as a guidance, not a directive. It's not an order. Right, yeah. Um, and it's time limited. That's to April 19th. And I, I've just been reading the notes from a, a discussion with the uh, school board chairs and uh, Dr. Rick Augustison, who's Dr. Henry's deputy uh, from this week. And, and very clearly, this is a bit of a trial and, and they want to evaluate. So this is by no means a done deal. Um, it's you- very possible that they could decide to go in a different direction come April 19th. So this is still kind of unclear, you know, what the long term it is. But ultimately, you know, there was some clarity. My understanding is uh, the education minister kind of flexed a bit of muscle and said, enough, we're going to be clear, we're just going to do this, because she had had those conversations, I believe, with some of the uh, partner groups and uh, was uh, quite supportive of moving forward with the mask requirement. Well, you described the first couple of days, beginning with the Premier's conference with the Minister and Dr. Henry on Monday and the subsequent trying to figure it all out that took us through Tuesday as a master class in how not to communicate during a public health crisis, Patty, uh, uh, yeah. only because of the degree of confusion that it's caused. And it's, it's not been a good ride for messaging the past few weeks. In addition to the mask controversy, and I put that in quotes only because I think somebody in Victoria thinks it should be. Uh, and also, of course, with the AstraZeneca complications uh, and and so on. So in terms of public health messaging, uh, it's it's been a rough and confusing week. So the upshot of it is going into Easter weekend, is it safe to say that all children going back to school next week on Tuesday uh, will have to wear masks uh, from grade four up full stop? Um, No, (laughs) not quite full stop, almost. Uh, They will be required to wear masks if they can. If they have a medical condition, a behavioral condition, uh, and even if they're just, if they have parents who are anti-maskers and they put up a fuss, they're not going to be excluded. But the expectation is all students grade four and up will wear masks even when seated unless they're eating or drinking or doing an activity. You know, if they're outside running around or something in PE class, they may not have to. There are some exceptions, but yes, the, the expectation is uh, uh, for the most part, uh, grades four and up. And, and even the, the younger grades, they'll be encouraged and sure. supported to wear their masks. Well, it's about time. You know, you, well, you've think- been writing about this for months, and, and, and just in terms of some kind of consensus, so that both the teaching uh, half of the equation, the parents, and of course, in the middle of it all, the students, the pupils, everyone can, can live with something that is agreed upon. And we finally got to a point that we perhaps should have got to maybe six months ago, where obviously there will be exceptions for those young people who can't wear masks for a variety of reasons, but the, the, the ground rule now basically is if you can wear a mask, you're expected to wear one. And that's the way uh, that one would have hoped this whole thing would have been handled many months ago. What was the problem, Patty? 
Well, I mean, most jurisdictions did. The other provinces, um, most, uh, or at least from grades four and up, they're wearing masks. I think Alberta, they're grades one and up. Uh, every uh, The U.S., I know a lot of the schools stayed closed for some time, but the uh, American Centers for Disease Control, their guidelines, uh, they, they talk about the hierarchy that masks are one of the key layers of protection, mm-hmm. where our public health officers still do not agree with that in for schools. And, and, and I know Dr. Gustafson still says they're, you know, she's questioning if they're effective in schools. Um, I think there's been a lot of frustration around the availability of clear data around transmission in schools. Is it happening? Is it not? It's hard to know because they discourage testing children that don't have symptoms. And we know now that children are often asymptomatic when they have COVID-19, but they can transmit it. So we don't really know. Uh, I hear anecdotally from many families that they've been incredibly careful. They have few contacts, but they do have a child who goes to school. And then the family became infected. And, they, you know, they believe that it came back to the household through the school. Uh, the public health officers, contract tracers, it's spotty. They don't always agree. They'll say, we don't know. It could have been the community. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's a lot of, I think, you know, this, this lack of clear data that we're not getting the same kind of data in B.C. as you do in other jurisdictions is leading to a lot of frustration. I think our levels of testing, uh, we're not testing nearly at the rate probably that we should be. And so we don't really know. And I think that creates more anxiety. And, you know, when I talked about this is not how you communicate in a crisis. I used to do uh, communications for the Richmond School District a few decades ago. Um, You know, one of the things in the communications business is clarity, uh, accuracy, timely messages is incredibly important in Mm. a crisis. Mm. When you're sending out, you know, there were so many different words used last week, support math, encourage math, require math, mandate math. What does it all mean? You shouldn't have to be guessing and sifting through and comparing statements. Um, when you're trying to operate a school during a public health crisis, no you know, question about it. To the to the school districts to put them through all of this, and they're getting emails from parents saying, "Well, you know, what's the requirement?" And uh, it, it just the confusion is the last thing we need. We need clear communications. There are people being paid very well to do that, and they they, in my opinion, have failed to do that, and adds to the stress at a time when no one needs more stress. Uh, Well, we're grateful for your time and for your efforts on this regard. And let's hope that we've just taken a collective step in the right direction here, Patty. Thanks for this this morning. Always a pleasure. Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith on this Good Friday. The healthcare system is supposed to look after the sick and the vulnerable, but it can't do that if reckless medical professionals are exposing patients to COVID-19. This the subheadline of a story written yesterday by Diane Francis in the National Post entitled COVID Vaccines Must Be Mandatory for Healthcare Workers. Diane Francis is with us this morning to flesh it out a little bit. Diane, always a pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Tell us more about Italy did this, uh, by the way, on Wednesday, mm-hmm. mandating uh, health care workers to be vaccinated. Uh, it, should it be done in Canada? And if so, when? Well, I think it should be done everywhere. Um, I didn't know about this until a week and a half or so ago when I was told by someone at the Toronto General Hospital that the operating rooms were closed for the week because there'd been a COVID breakout. Mm. And, you know, I thought, whoa, that's, <clears throat> that's terrible. And they said, well, because, because it was in, and I said, well, was a patient brought in with COVID? And they said, no, no, it was staff. 
And I said, well, who would do such a thing? Doctors, nurses? We don't know. We can't ask. So then I realized, and then I talked to some other people, that this is a widespread concern among the health professional community and has been since the beginning, that they don't know if the person they're working side by side with has gotten the vaccination or not. And the hospitals are not allowed to to make them sign a form or to say that they are. And it looks like it's, and long-term care homes are just as bad. Right. So we're looking at, you know, um, <clears throat> I've seen some estimates that it's probably 30%. So one in three people that have anything to do with patients are not protected, which is absolutely wrong. And people don't know this, and they should know this. So is it, uh, is it possible, is it legally possible, and I know you're not a lawyer, but you've done some homework and you do terrific homework, is it legally possible, you're in Ontario, for example, for the Ford government to make it a provincial requirement that if you're in the healthcare business in this province, you will take a shot or step aside? Well, yes, I think it is, but they've been told by their legal beagles that, uh, you know, it's, it's under the, uh, the charter rights that you can't make a person undergo a medical treatment that, against their will, right. which I completely understand, and sure. that protects patients, too. Mm-hmm. But this is no, this is different. And, you know, you don't have to make them do it. You just ask them, and apparently you're not even legally allowed to ask them if they've gotten a vaccine or to prove they've gotten a vaccine, even if they're working in a hospital with, in, a, in a patient-facing position and that would include the guy who delivers the trays of food and cleans your room and so this is what seems to be uh, an obstacle and i don't know whether that's valid or not but i think what is valid is the patients are number one they're more important than the workers and i think that the institutions in the provinces that run the health care system should just go ahead and mandate that this is absolutely required they have to have proof of vaccination or they can't even enter the building and, and and they and they can't be tested apparently either. But I think that so if they don't want to do that, if they don't want to comply, then they don't come to work and they don't get paid. And it's pretty safe to say that uh, they would be challenged. There would be a court challenge, a charter mm-hmm. challenge based on the Charter of Rights that you've identified already. But that would not happen overnight. And in the meantime, uh, the uh, assurance in terms of the public that those in the healthcare industry were getting their vaccines would be uh, it would rise measurably, don't you think? Well, yes, absolutely. And I think that the rights, those rights are overridden by patients' rights. And that is the next time anybody goes into or has their parent in a long-term care facility, I think the patient and or their advocate has a right to say and demand proof of vaccination concerning anybody who does anything touching or handling the patient. Sure. And so I think patients' rights trump any workers' rights. And I would like to see that. I don't care if it's tested in court or not. I mm-hmm. just think it, it's common sense and it has to be. When you go into a hospital, if you want to go into, first of all, you can't visit people in hospitals because of the lockdowns and so on. And in many long-term care homes, you can't. Just starting here in BC. Just starting now. Okay. Okay. Well, we're locked down in Ontario. Yeah. So I have to go to a clinic every couple of months in a hospital. I'm quizzed. I'm asked questions. I should be, I should have to prove that I've been vaccinated. So I'm in favor of vaccine passports. I'm in favor of testing and certainly mandating, uh, mandating any contractor or any 
personnel in uh, in a healthcare setting. Diane, uh, to be vaccinated. your opinions are always uh, much sought after. I enjoy reading your writing behind the opinions. Thank you for this this morning. We're just a, a little cramped for time. Always glad to make time for you, though. And this is an issue that we're going to run up the flagpole here for the next while with our listeners today. Thanks Great. for keep for, the conversation going. Absolutely. Thank you. A pleasure. Take care, Diane. We'll talk again. Cloudy skies and 7 degrees, kind of a socked-in Good Friday morning here in downtown Vancouver. I'm Sterling Fox, sitting in for Mike Smith. Our next guest is here to talk about Budget Day, which comes up on April 19th in Ottawa. He's here to talk about what he thinks should be in the next federal budget, and then what he thinks will be in the next federal budget. And I think we're talking about two distinctly different documents. Our guest is Ed Fast, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Abbotsford in the Fraser Valley, official opposition finance critic. In England, Ed, they would call you the shadow finance minister. Good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Good to be on your show. It's good to have you with us, uh, Ed. One of the recommendations that we see coming in time and time again with respect to Ms. Freeland and the upcoming federal budget from the OECD, from the C.D. Howe Institute, from a variety of, of sources, is the need for a fiscal anchor. All of these different sources recommending to the government of Canada that they attach a fiscal anchor to this upcoming budget. What does that mean? Well, a fiscal anchor is basically a set of rules and a target that will constrain spending in the future to guide the government as it seeks to get back to balance. In other words, living within its means. As you know, over the last year and a half, we've had unprecedented spending, unprecedented borrowing at the federal level. It's created a huge debt, and we want to make sure that the government of Canada has a plan to manage that huge uh, financial challenge. Does the frequency of these reminders of the necessity of a fiscal anchor, Ed, suggest to you that the people doing the reminding are perhaps a little unsure whether the government understands what they're talking about. You're absolutely correct. Our concern is that the government actually will table a budget that does not put in place the rules and the guidelines to ensure that future generations of Canadians have a hope for a secure future, for prosperity going forward. Do they see a light at the end of the tunnel for themselves? And uh, this is absolutely critical. Uh, we are also looking, of course, for this budget to continue to support Canadians until we're all through the pandemic. Right. There are six, 600,000 Canadians still out of work uh, who want to get back to work. Uh, we have somewhere in the order of 240,000 small businesses that may be closed permanently by the end of the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business has made it very clear that their members, small businesses, are struggling supremely. And many of them have fallen through the cracks when it comes to these support programs that the government has brought forward. So we want to make sure this budget addresses those shortcomings and provides Canadians with a way through this pandemic and with the hope for a secure future. 
So those are the that that's uh, I'm doing it kind of in a reverse order then because I, I was going to get you to talk about what you think will be in the budget and what you think should be in the budget. So we're talking now about what should be the budget. So you're the shadow finance minister, as the Brits would call you, Ed. Were you to be Canada's finance minister in a couple of weeks? What sort of budget would you bring down? What what sort of anchor and game plan would be the root of the budget? Well, we, we would, of course, bring forward a budget that has that fiscal anchor that you referenced, whether it's a debt-to-GDP target or whether it's a debt-servicing-to-GDP target, because those two are quite different. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also believe that going forward, there has to be a plan to manage our debt. So there has to be a debt management strategy. Uh, we do believe there has to be a plan to support the most heavily impacted sectors of our economy, the, the ones that have suffered the most and are, are likely to reopen the last once we get a plan in place to safely reopen the economy. And those are sectors like tourism and hospitality, the charitable sector, airlines, mm-hmm. and a host of small businesses that are still struggling. So now let's talk about what the, what is likely to be in the budget, because we know that Liberals have parked $100 billion uh, to essentially buy the next election. They have the absolute confidence of the NDP, uh, so they owe them a national daycare program. So are you expecting that, among other expensive goodies, uh, instead of a, a game uh, plan for managing the debt, etc.? They're not going to do that. They want to win a majority, Ed, and they're prepared to spend whatever it takes. You're absolutely correct. Uh, We expect that this will be the largest spending budget in history. And and, and don't get me wrong. uh, I'm hoping that some of those programs will be exactly the programs that Canadians need to get them through the pandemic. Sure. But because uh, the Minister of Finance has set aside $100 billion on top of that, what she calls stimulus spending. We had her at our parliamentary committee and we asked her repeatedly, what do you plan to spend that money on? And she refused to say. And so our fears are that she will be spending that money on things that uh, help her government to buy an election but doesn't invest in the key things that will improve the productivity of our economy and the competitiveness of our economy vis-a-vis other economies around the world. Because Canada has lagged way behind in terms of productivity. In other words, output per Canadian that's working. And the further we fall behind, the less secure our future prosperity is. Yeah, Ed, I'm almost out of time, but I have to ask you this question. How do you combat that? You've been a cabinet minister in a, in a, in a federal government. You know the drill for getting reelected. How do you, the opposition, come at a party that's walking around the country with an open checkbook going, so what do you need? Okay, here's a check. How do you counter that in an election campaign? Well, firstly, we have to, of course, expose any spending that isn't delivering on the priorities of Canadians. And we will do that. We'll continue to do that. But secondly, we have to have our own plan for what we would do to get the economy up and running again. Good point. To get small small businesses back 
on their feet to help Canadians get back to work. And that's going to involve things like investing in broadband, uh, investing in innovation, research and development, and retraining and upskilling. And you and I could talk for another hour on this, but there are specific proposals we'll be coming forward with that will give Canadians the confidence that they can place their trust in a conservative government going forward that we know what we're doing. Ed Fast, thanks for this. Appreciate your time, sir. We'll obviously have a chat once this budget is official and on the public record, but we do appreciate this bit of a sneak preview uh, as to what your expectations. The bar is pretty low, Ed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad to help, Sterling. I'd be glad to come back on uh, after the budget's been tabled. Terrific. We'll, We'll look forward to that conversation. Thanks for today. You're welcome. It's Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith on Good Friday. I don't know whether you've heard yet or not, but there's a bit of a crisis in the Vancouver Canucks organization. There was first one player, then two, and a member of the coaching staff. Now, apparently, the total is up to eight members of the organization with COVID uh, 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 testing positive. Uh, we'll have more on this story as it unfolds throughout the morning. Uh, Rob Williams will join us a little later. Time now to turn our attention to Eastern Europe. The war in Eastern Ukraine, which has been on a low simmer for months drawing very little international attention, has escalated sharply in recent days. And this according to statements from both the Ukrainian and Russian governments. So what's going on here? Why the escalation in tensions? Is this just the Russians testing the mettle of the new Biden administration? To look behind all of this, we are delighted to welcome Marcus Kolga to the program. He is a leading Canadian expert on Russian and Central and Eastern European issues. And he is also a senior fellow with the McDonald's Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. Mr. Kolga, Marcus, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Sterling. It's a pleasure, Marcus. Uh, this uh, this uh, has been simmering, as the New York Times uh, article I read from, for a long time. There was some kind of ceasefire which was to expire this week and then subject to renegotiations, or am, am I misreading that uh, aspect of what's going on over there? No, you're you're absolutely right. There's uh, there's been a simmering conflict, a low level conflict that's been happening in uh, eastern Ukraine now for uh, quite a number of years. Uh, you'll recall back in 2014, uh, just after the Russian Winter Olympics in Sochi, Sochi um, Russia invaded the the peninsula the, on the Black Sea, the Ukrainian peninsula of, of Crimea, right, and then uh, and then invaded eastern Ukraine and. And uh, there's been a ceasefire in place of the current one since about, I think it was June 2020. Um, And you're right, it's set to expire. But uh, Russia has been, uh, certainly over the last month or so, uh, has been slowly uh, building up its uh, military presence on the border of of eastern Ukraine once again. And it's really risen sharply. Uh, There's been a massive troop movement, heavy, heavy hardware um, and also, you know, various uh, bits of infa- infrastructure, field hospitals, uh, fuel being uh, delivered to various parts uh, of the of the border area, the frontier area. And there's uh, there's very serious concern uh, about what this might mean. And, and you mentioned that is this, you know, just Russia flexing its muscles right, right now with the new Biden administration. And, you know, I think that's our best case scenario. Um, but uh, reading some of the tweets from people like uh, Ben Hodges, who's the former uh, U.S. commander of its uh, forces in Europe, he was tweeting that you don't uh, you don't push this sort of transport, this sort of uh, infrastructure, the volume that be, that's being transported right now from uh, 
other Russian locations, military hardware and such. You don't do that if you're just trying to, uh, you know, uh, frighten your for your neighbors or right. trying to send a message. Yeah, it's beyond, so this a, is, a little beyond the political theater level. And I've seen some of those uh, civilian uh, um, videos. And this is where you go, Marcus. Now, yeah. you would know better than me, but you can go on YouTube and you can go to many websites and you can look at videos that just people in, in Ukraine and in that part of the world have on their telephones just tape these t- trains rolling by, some troop trains, other trains just loading with tanks and howitzers. I mean, it is a yep. significant buildup of, of munitions and personnel. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, you know, on one level, it's fascinating to see all of these videos that have been posted. You know, but I was just, I couldn't stop watching one this morning. Uh, somebody had posted just right on the border. You can see the, the barbed wire at the border. You can see dozens of attack helicopters mm-hmm. flying just, uh, you know, maybe half a kilometer inside of Russia. Uh, and you and you mentioned all sorts of har- hardware, you know, uh, artillery pieces, uh, tanks and such. Uh, in fact, I think it was just uh, on Monday, if I'm not mistaken, or Tuesday, where uh, there were complaints inside Russia from from uh, business that uh, the the transport of goods had slowed to such a, uh, a pace because of the amount of military activity that uh, businesses were complaining that they weren't getting goods shipped uh, mm-hmm. through through Russia. So this is really, it's, it's a massive buildup. And, uh, you know, having seen this sort of thing before back in 2014, my fear is that there's, uh, you know, there's, there's something brewing within, you know, it could be within weeks, it could be within days. Yeah. Uh, but there is, there's some, there's an imminent uh, conflict uh, that's, that's going to be happening uh, fairly, fairly shortly. Marcus, try this one on for size. Just, just, just a, a, a humor me for a few seconds here. We have this enormous buildup of munitions and personnel on the Russia-Ukraine border. Simultaneously in the Pacific Ocean, you have an enormous buildup of concentration of munitions and personnel in southern China as the threat to Taiwan. Taiwan is ratcheted up several notches in the past few weeks. Again, yep. these could both be, checked, you know, just testing the new Biden regime's metal from both East and West extremes. Or is there a deal afoot? Well, you know, we've seen a limited amount of coordination between China and Russia, certainly with in the sphere of disinformation, uh, vaccines and coordinating messages to undermine Western positions and to, uh, you know, polarize us when it comes to our alliances. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, Russia and China were, were, were coordinating on some of this, at least informing each other. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you mentioned those two aspects. I should also uh, include on that, that just on Monday of this week, there were 10 airspace violations uh, of NATO airspace by Russian aircraft. And NATO itself put out a um, a message yep. earlier this week saw that yep. stating that, that it's this this sort of level of uh, incursions and and the activity that's uh, that the Russians are uh, are engaging in is is really highly unusual. So, so it's not just Ukraine. It's also, you know, it's happening in the Baltic Sea area. It's happening in the Arctic as well. Mm-hmm. Marcus, I don't have a great deal of time left, and I need to ask you this question. What does America need to do? This is all a test. Trump was happy to look the other way and oblige Russia in, in every conceivable fashion. Uh, this is China and Russia. What should America say to calm the waters uh, if possible? 
Well, you know, this is the, the question is, can America do something to calm the waters? Um, you know, I suspect what's happening in Ukraine right now is much more about domestic politics. Um, Vladimir Putin is, is way down in the polls right now. Yes, he is. And when he's way down in the polls, he starts shooting. And it's often in the direction of opposition leaders and Ukraine. And so he needs a distraction from what's going to be a very active summer in Russia with regards to protests. Uh-huh. So an invasion, an invasion uh, would, would be the perfect antidote for that. Now, what can the United States do? We already had this, this morning, uh, President Biden called Ukraine's President uh, Zelensky. They've had a conversation. Uh, the U.S. has reiterated its support for, for Ukraine. But the U.S. needs to start talking to NATO partners, Canada included, and, and take a tough position and make sure that Russia understands that there will be consequences uh, if it does indeed uh, invade uh, Ukraine in the coming days or weeks. Well, let's just hope this just remains at the political theater level. Marcus, that's ominous yeah. enough. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. A pleasure to talk to you. We appreciate your expertise on this matter a great deal. Anytime, Sterling. Thanks for having me on. Sterling Fox from Mike Smith on this Good Friday. We were receiving word from Washington, D.C. that the United States Capitol is on lockdown due to an external security threat. They have announced inside the buildings that uh, everyone is to stay indoors and away from windows. CNN reporting ambulances and helicopters in the area. One person seen on a stretcher. Apparently someone rammed a vehicle into one of the exterior boundaries. Uh, two uh, Capitol uh, police uh, injured in the process. We'll have more on this at the top of the hour on CKNW and Global News. Closer to home, a group of parents are calling on the government to treat toxic drug overdoses, which have gotten much worse since the pandemic began, as urgently as COVID-19. And that COVID-19 restrictions might even be contributing to young people using drugs. Interesting twist on the plot. Here to tell us more is Kathleen Redu. He was a member of Moms Stop the harm. Kathleen, good morning and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Tell us about Morgan, please. Yeah, Morgan um, died on June 16th um, last summer, 2020. Uh, He died eight eight days after his 26th birthday. Mm. Um, Morgan had uh, struggled with um, uh, crossing over from party drugs into street drugs. And in 2018, um, we almost lost him due to a septic shock which is when we, as a family, got a crash course in uh, addiction and recovery and uh, the roller coaster ride of this insane disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell us a little bit about Moms Stop the Harm, Kathleen. I mm-hmm. assume you became a member of this group uh, after Morgan died. I actually became a member of the group prior to um, Morgan dying. Mm. Um, it's a support group for a lot of families who are struggling with um, loved ones who are struggling with addiction. Um, We have a Holding Hope group, which is for people who, uh, families who are struggling with children or loved ones who are in active addiction. Um, And then we also have other support groups through Mom Stop the Harm. So it's a safe place to land. It's a lot of people who have a lot of experience, and um, it has grown astronomically um, over the last year, for sure, since COVID has hit. We've obviously seen the numbers, um, you know, increase rapidly, and uh, it's a bit bittersweet, you know, um, so many families that are hurting from the loss of loved ones. No question about that part. Now, tell us a little bit more about why uh, the, the, the group uh, petitioned the government basically saying, 
uh, health crisis, that is, people who are involved in, in, in drugs uh, need to be uh, dealt with as urgently as COVID-19. So clearly, yeah. you, you don't feel that that equal degree of attention is being paid. No, absolutely not. I mean, we've seen how quickly the government was able to mobilize with COVID and everything that was put in place almost overnight. Um, and, you know, we've shifted the, you know, obviously the government declared a public health emergency back five years ago, coming up April 14th. Um, but five years have passed, and yet we tragically continue to see the rates of toxic poisoning deaths steadily rise, mm-hmm. especially during COVID. And, um, you know, we, this is no longer just an overdose crisis. This is now a toxic crisis. This shifted um, when COVID hit. So many more people had, um, you know, access that they couldn't go to their, you know, regular routines. Things were changed for them. They were, they didn't have their supports in place. And so we definitely have seen um, the government not act as quickly as they could have. I mean, our kids are dying and we are wiping out a generation of kids and we have seen very little movement from the government um, in all of this. Yeah. And unfortunately they, they've also said so many times, you know, they know that some of the things they put in place, uh, we've had Bonnie Henry say this, so many things they put in place to slow down the spread of the COVID of COVID right. um, unfortunately impacted the toxic crisis. Yeah, you know, it's another part, and it's it's a neither here nor there observation. But you know, another area across Canada that has been almost equally affected, Kathleen, is is people who really need to go to the hospital with you know chronic medical conditions who are terrified of going anywhere near a hospital on a just out of fear of catching COVID. So we've got a, a number of people in serious medical difficulties right across the country who really otherwise wouldn't have been. But again, what you're suggesting here is, and even though the government knows that by restricting activities, they're going to harm or impede the recovery capability of, of some people. There Again, it's uh, Keith and I were talking about this last hour. It's sort of a dueling rights thing that happens, and it's always has to, it seems to be the majority has to rule. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, it's where people, what people value too, and unfortunately it's become political. Um, which is unfortunate because, unfortunately, so many families are suffering. And, you know, again, we had 155 more families just in B.C. plummet into a lifetime of grief. You know, grief doesn't have an end. It's just something that is is there for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we're seeing an increase of mental health. We're wanting to see, you know, addiction be treated like the disease it is, you know, with an actual health plan. Right. Um, we want to see it linked with mental health because we know that most people that struggle with addiction have suffered some sort of trauma in their life and how ha- and struggle with mental health issues. And when there's, you know, when there's no access to those treatments and their and their wait lists are forever, um, it really makes that difficult for them to bridge from, you know, going from active addiction into recovery. Indeed. Uh, I'm looking at a global news story that uh, we, we reported about this a while back and included you. And a, and a quote from you says, if I could say one thing about Morgan is that he hated his addiction more than anything. And when he died, he'd, he was in, in recovery. He had gained weight. He was working out. He was coming around. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was at the gym four or five days a week. He was swimming in the pool. 
Um, it was the best we had ever seen him. He had been drug-free for five months. He had so much hope for the future. And we know that relapse is part of recovery, sure. and um, but relapse shouldn't equal death. And unfortunately, Morgan took a toxic dose of um, fentanyl, carfentanyl, yeah. um, and, and relapsed and, and unfortunately died on his sixth relapse. And what we need is we need to have a continuum of care so that when people do relapse, they're able to work through peeling back some of those layers so that they can get through and and live a life, you know, that is full Absolutely. And, and happy. Kathleen, thanks very much for doing this. It's tough, and, and I do appreciate your courage and your willingness to, to tell the story. Thanks so much.